Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. Over the next few weeks, universities will start to welcome students for the beginning of a new academic year. The regular influx of new students and staff is just one factor that makes security challenging in academic environments. But over the last few years, the sector has also been the focus of unwelcome attention from criminal hackers, a trend that has accelerated with the rise of ransomware and during the pandemic. In this first of two episodes looking at security in academia and research, we speak to Kevin Curran, a senior member of the IEEE and Professor of Cybersecurity at the University of Ulster, about the threats facing universities and researchers and what lies behind them. We started by asking whether he thought increases in attacks are being driven, in part at least, by the COVID-19 pandemic. My gut feeling is that the attacks would have increased in a way because, again, that's where the money is now. It's all online. Um, it's so much easier for them because the tools are becoming easier. Um, the threats are becoming wider again. And even the National Computer Security Centre at NCSC in the UK issued um, just a few weeks ago um, a warning about the increase in ransomware um, attacking the UK's educational sector again. But um, whether or not that's a direct um, you know, a causation from COVID, um, th- that's up for debate, really. I, I think ransomware attacks would have increased this year. Um, hacking would have just continued to go where it's going because of the, unfortunately, the, the, the arrival of cryptocurrencies, which make it um, even denial of service attacks now lucrative, uh, whereas in the past you couldn't make money from a denial of service attack, but now you can. Um, and of course, the standard ransomware. So, um, it, it, yeah, we're, the, you know, all UK universities are seeing, uh, you know, large threats again. And a lot of universities have been brought down in the last few months as well. Parts of their, uh, parts of their systems have been brought down by ransomware. Why would a threat actor particularly target a university? Because they're not enormously wealthy, are they? It's not the same as going after some of the very large industrial companies that have been targeted in the past year. Exactly, but universities do have money and it it could seem that some of these ransomware gangs, because ransomware really is ransomware as a service now, that most of these people take their ransomware, they buy it off the Ryoks of this world and the, and, the, and the other kingpings, really, and that they just use these services. But it's possible that they concentrate on certain systems because a ransomware attack is not as simple as just someone clicking on something. Now, it can be on an ordinary PC, but for a network where you want to compromise a complete network, you have to be able to pivot on the network. You have to understand, you know, just how networks work, you know, really be an IT administrator to be able to move across, examine the databases, examine all the, the systems, and then obviously capture the data and then ask for your ransomware. So the fact is, a lot of these, probably the ones which are attacking the education sector, specifically specialize in that because they know the content management systems which are used maybe Moodle or it could be Blackboard and then they know the way around there and they know that X number of universities use that particular system then it's possible that a lot of the universities are using other systems which are in common and this makes it more easy you know so therefore because you will have you will have ransomware gangs which specifically attack sectors like the finance sector the legal sector um and again i just think that there's a ransomware gangs out there which just concentrate on the educational sector there is also the question of how universities operate though so in essence universities and research is set up to be collaborative does that make it easier 
Does that make it easier for the attacker? Um, no, I wouldn't say that because really our all, most of our collaborations occur over email, whatever. And, you know, all organizations, their employees use email to communicate. So I, I don't see any... Um, I don't see that the collaborative, the collaborative part of what we do as being a part, of, you know, any part of the the problem and such that generally uh, we share documents, we we share, but that's done usually over email as, as itself. So um, it's just that you know, like universities are huge organizations, really, and you have legacy systems as well. And the more systems you have, just like healthcare as well, um, you know, the, the the hackers only have to get lucky ones where the good guys have to protect every avenue. So universities are no different than a lot of organizations right now with a hodgepodge of systems, really trying to keep them together and um, trying to to patch them. Really. Yeah, so large organizations with a fairly transient user population that's always going to create some issues, isn't it? It is. It is, of course. Are we seeing increasingly complex attacks, though? Because if we go back and sticking, if you may, with ransomware for the moment, the first tranche of ransomware attacks were not particularly clever. They just, as you said, got lucky. They they hit on particular vulnerabilities that they could exploit and allowed them to move through systems, such as we saw with uh, WannaCry in, in the NHS. Uh, but are we seeing the complexity increase? Yes, um, of course. You, you know, the systems are getting so much better, the ransomware attacks, um, again, that they're always adding to it. They're, they're, they're finding the latest zero days. Um, I, uh, um, again, of course, as we know, that ransomware gangs, a lot of them have call centers now to help um, help people very kindly um, convert their money into Bitcoin, for instance, or Monero. Um, but, but yeah, some of these attacks are incredibly sophisticated. In fact, the keys behind the Ryuk malware is 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 a wonderful um, piece of technology. Really, it's you know we believe it's created created by um, R- Russian or Eastern Europe hackers, and again that they're able to encrypt files down to um, down to the file le- file level and unencrypt those files again. And that of course the ransomware gang at the top hold the actual master key, but they give um, uh, you know a per attack key to the people who buy the ransomware attack. And again, we have a fine, uh, you know, a fine grained um, granularity when it comes to locking files and unlocking files. For instance, if someone finds that, they're, that they're, their entire file system is encrypted, um, they're able to just maybe unlock some of the Excel spreadsheets or whatever else. So you, what you have now is um, a very specific um, kind of ransomware when it comes to locking files. It's not done in the, in the early ways where everything was, was locked with the one key and all the files were locked. And if you wanted to unlock one file, you had to unlock all the files. But now... Um, it's 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 granular, and that links in as well to this question of keeping files confidential or threatening to release files on the internet. That's become yeah kind of a new modus operandi, um, where that they if they feel that the institution is not going to pay the ransomware, that they will leak some of the files online. So, you know that's yeah that's just become kind of commonplace right now. So that's one part of the picture. But what about other attack vectors that we're seeing, such as, for example, the supply chain attacks that have been uh, causing issues across different industries? Is that something that could potentially impact or is impacting this sector? I mean, yeah, but supply chain attacks, you know, go across any sector, really. But of course, that is that's always a worry. Um, Again, we've seen some of the some attacks on banks where it was actually they they, they assist the you know the assistance, the screen reader, which was the which was attacked on the page, and the JavaScript there was was hijacked really, and that, that's where 
you know, as just an, an exemplar of a supply chain attack where something on the web page was actually compromised and no one would have thought about that before. But um, all sectors is having a problem with supply chain, really, because, again, where, where do you trust code again? And it's um, we're seeing attacks where GitHub and even operating systems would be compromised really with files again. It's a clever way of doing it again. So, But somewhere along the line, you, you've just got to trust the libraries that you use and the systems that you use and the VMs and everything else. Otherwise, really, you'd have to go to the beach and um, get your silicon yourself and build your own computer from the ground up because somewhere you have to have trust in the Intel chip or the, the trusted platform module or whatever else. There's always going to be some dependencies and checking absolutely everything, as you say, is impossible. No end user organization could undertake that level of due diligence. But if we if we look then at the question of the volume of attacks, we talked about the complexity. That's something that we have seen some evidence of an increase during COVID. Is that something that you expect to persist? Do you, do you think that there's been a shift just as there's been a shift towards online retail? Has there been a shift towards online crime over the last year and a half? Because of cryptocurrencies and people are understanding there's real money to be made here. Um, you know, it, it's hard to see where, where it fails. I mean, uh, um, one, of the, one of the things um, uh, I'd seen lately or how, how do we ever stop ransomware at the moment? How do we stop denial of service attacks? Because you know, the Irish health system was brought to his knees about a month and a half ago, six weeks ago, and still recovering. Um, my first cousin works, you know, she was just telling me it's still, it's still a complete mess almost two months later. Um, so again, how do we, how do we deal with this again? So we can't, we cannot ban cryptocurrencies. That, that's, that, that's too late. Um, but I like the, the thing where um, it, it says the governments perhaps should actually um, attack systems to some degree um, and then give a message up saying, look, at, I got in, I got into your system because of this vulnerability, this, 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 please patch. And then once you've patched, we'll, you know, unlock your computers or whatever else. It's kind of a proactive hacking from a government, really. Um, now, whether that's completely possible or not, but it's actually not the worst idea I've ever heard. And, you know, maybe it's, we have to do something like that in the future unless some miracle happens where, um yeah, I don't know where where computers become safer and more robust, or we have kind of VMs which only pitch up for a few minutes, and then we can isolate processes. But that's very hard to do with computers, really. Generally, ransomware gets in; it's able to encrypt the entire file system. So, government-led or government-regulated pen testing or ethical hacking—that could be part of it. It could be, you know. I mean, well, why not? It's an interesting idea, and I, I suppose at the moment it's been largely left to organisations to contract their own people to do that outside of some specific sectors, you know, defence and other elements of national security are probably those that do that type of work in-house. But again, is that something that universities and research organisations have, have started to look at and they're starting to invest in now? Because it is a cost, and it can be disruptive as well. It is indeed. Um, in fact, in some ways, GDPR has really helped. I mean, compared to the stupid cookie law, which was ridiculous, which doesn't help anyone, um, GDPR was actually well thought out um, and put the onus back on institutions to um, to look after data and protect it um, as such. And uh, of course, then with that comes the possibility of fines. So I guess senior management in universities um, should be as, as aware as industry of um, of 
there, there are risks of being prosecuted really or having to pay fines if they're if they're not protecting our data properly so i think that university departments of course are getting increased budgets really because in the past it was very it was quite difficult to be able to to ask for more money when everything's working fine i mean that's the, that's the kind of the dilemma of being a security um insecurity that if everything is working okay um, it's hard to prove that you did anything positive to prevent that. But of course, when things hit the hit the roof, then of course it's possible that your head will roll, especially if you're the, if you're the senior um, security um, person. But I think that the GDPR does help, and and and, and it makes it easier for. Um, the IT department to ask for increased resources again. But of course, there is a cost and security always comes at convenience as well. Um, and again, the more things you add, the more second factor authentications, tokens, hardware tokens, everything else, the more you have to invest in um, in, in people manning um, remote desks and you know whatever else, providing support really. Whereas we just have to move into this world where where things are not as easy as we might like them to be, but they're just necessary. From a perspective of teaching institutions in particular, where would you focus your attention now if you were talking to uh, the board of directors, board of studies, the CIO of an institution? Would you suggest focusing on any particular areas of defence? For me, the, the holy grail and is coming is um, searchable encryption. It's where you have fully homomorphic encryption where you have the data. See, at the moment, HTTPS takes care of our data in transit. So whenever we're sending our data or we're connecting to a website with HTTPS, the padlock, our data is safe in transit from a man in the middle attacks. However, data being processed in the cloud is in the clear. So in other words, we're trusting cloud providers with our data or files again. As even Dropbox have even said in the past that they can scan files for marketing material, everything else. So again, if you're in security, high security or in the military, how could you ever use a service like Dropbox? But fully homomorphic encryption, a searchable encryption is where you have the data completely encrypted in the cloud or on a third party host. And it's only encrypted on the client device. And that means that even if the data does leak, all they get is gobbledygook. They do not get any any of the keys and the cloud provider cannot see the keys. And that to me will get around a lot of the issues um, again. Now it doesn't stop ransomware attacks, but it does it does limit the damage which is caused. But more, more than that, because ransomware is not everything. The fact is that um, if you have homomorphic encryption and, and your data is encrypted in the cloud totally, well, data leaks can't happen then because the, the, the responsibility for the key is with the person and the decryption only happens on the client side device. So I, I think that's what we need. And it's not as if I'm, you know, and we, we also have, um, you know, and that goes nicely as well with um, Tim Berners-Lee's new vision for the, for the web. Um, again, with the solid project where everything, all our data is in pods. And we choose to share our data with maybe the likes of Twitter and Facebook. And if we ever want to revoke the data, we just we we revoke access to our pod. And for instance, there's some cool things about that. Like for instance, now if you change your address, you've got to go into every single one of your websites and your services and change your address. But with a pod, you only have to change your address once. And then all the people who are sucking data from your pod um, get updated in the same way. But um, it's again, it's taking data back and controlling. And then if you combine that kind of pod, that pod um, paradigm with fully homomorphic encryption, you have a nice secure model for the future. 
I can see the attraction of that, and in particular because you know ransomware has attracted a lot of attention recently. But it's not the only thing out there. And simple things, accidental or accidental data leaks, deliberate data theft by people working in institutions. That's still one of the significant risks. And the type of encryption you're describing there, and this federation of personal data, could address those those risks. Absolutely. I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. It's what has to be done in the future. We, we just have to presume that data will leak and we have to have some way of being able to make sure that we encrypt all our data before we post it anywhere and that we maintain, you know, close control of the keys, really, and just do client-side decryption. Um, it's, it's, it's just the future. Looking at the problem facing universities and the research sector, though, focusing now on the area of research, and in particular, we have seen commercial research organizations being targeted. We've seen academic research organizations being targeted during COVID, in particular with the goal to exfiltrate sensitive data around things like clinical trials, uh, vaccine development, and so on. Has that, to some extent, also been a wake-up call for that part of the industry? Uh, And again, potentially, has academic research been slightly on the back foot compared to its commercial peers when it comes to data security? Um, yeah, it d- depends on nature. I mean, th- yeah, I mean, there was talk about in, you know, um, in nationwide espionage about the COVID vaccines and everything else. And that's po- possibly true. Um, but the majority of research really is not that sensitive. You know, I mean, yes, you know, because in the internet we publish it, it's not a trade secret. I mean, some things are, of course, you know, you don't want your... You don't want research to get leaked before you have patented it, for instance, if there's IP there, for instance, whatever else. But the majority of research re- that we do reaches the wider world. You know, that's what we do. We research, we publish, and um, we release things again. But, um, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know how much... Um, has changed because of that. I think people are, I think academics are just doing what they did before, really. Uh, I don't see where any changes have happened in the last year, really, apart from obviously the remote working and all those things. And there, there is risk factors involved with remote working, of course, because people are using, you know, maybe systems which are not even university laptops, for instance, maybe using their 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 kids' laptop or their husband's laptop and then documents to be transferred. So there's always a risk with with, with remote working again so that's where a lot of organizations are now moving to a zero trust model again which google has championed is where you, you just don't trust any computer no matter if it's connected to the network you just presume that every every um, computer is um is a real computer and you should only grant it the permissions for what it needs to do really so that's definitely been an issue hasn't it in terms of organizations having to move very quickly to equip people to work from home. And we're seeing that some universities are talking about you know, continuing to teach remotely into 2022. So, uh, you know, clearly it will take time before they return to normal business as it was back in 2019. But just coming back to the risks posed by uh, hackers, though, it, there's not just the question of data theft and the theft of IP, although, of course, that is a real risk. But the other question is data integrity and manipulation of data. And there have been some accusations doing the rounds that uh, criminal nation state groups are actually trying to disrupt. So they may not particularly care about the, the information that they're looking at, but they just want to disrupt the process of that institution or that research group from doing their work for whatever reason. And that seems to be a worry in some quarters that actually you know, some very small changes to the integrity of data that's not properly protected uh, could have a big impact on research further down the line. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can see where data sets, for instance, were, were, if they were manipulated, that could you know, obviously lead to, um, you know, 
<laughs> misinformation, really. Um, data sets would be definitely something that could be manipulated. Um, it would be harder to probably manipulate other things like, you know, the text of a document or whatever else. But definitely data sets, yeah, should be, um, that's worth, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that, yeah, the data sets should be, you know, probably using hashes and making sure that your data set hasn't been changed in some way. But, yeah, that's interesting. I suppose it's about maintaining trust, isn't it? And maintaining trust in the integrity of the information, because if people start to question and, and you, you just you just lit on that very briefly just before when you talked about disinformation, this is one of the big things that has come into play and has been really driven up the, the public agenda, I think, over the last couple of years is this question of people manipulating public opinion and trust you know, via social media and other means. And again, if organizations and nation states can manipulate data and just question the integrity of it they don't need to necessarily change it they just need to change our trust in it then the knock-on effect of that can be quite serious yeah uh, absolutely it, it's it's um you know it's, it's hard for it's hard for people especially newbies you know we all wonder about the phishing emails that used to come in and they're so they're so basic and you think who would get conned by that? And yet there's always people coming online all the time, every day, you know, new people who get their first computer. Um, again, how do you teach? How do you teach ed etiquette, really? How do you teach someone to spot if that only comes through experience, really? Um, and again, some things are very difficult in, you know, with the, the rise of deep fake videos, for instance, now we can't even trust our videos. Um, we've also seen a kind of a pretty cool attack last year where, um, someone's voice was modulated. Um, they had, they had, um, they had recorded and sampled the CEO's voice and they phoned up someone in, in, in this person's, um, finance department and, and told them to transfer, you know, X, Y, Z money to whatever. Um, and of course they were out hundreds of thousands. Um, so again, in the future, because of the deep fake audio, um, it's possible that even when someone rings up and you, you, you and you're near almost certain it's, it's, you know, it's Min, it's Mindy or it's Dave, you might have to ask for a password, have a verbal password as well, because you can't trust the voice. So again, that's where we're going. You know, what, what you know, our trust models will have to increasingly change over time as well. And that puts more disruption and more friction back into the systems because you're going to have to stop what you're doing and implement additional security measures, additional checks uh, in a business process that previously didn't have those checks. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, but that's that's our society. We, you know, we're constantly having to reevaluate. From your perspective, though, from the work that you're doing, uh, what would you then say are the greatest risks facing organisations? And, and it could potentially across the board, it could be in the research sector, it could be in academia, and it could be beyond that into government and the commercial world. But are you seeing any particular areas that perhaps have not received as much attention as they should over the last 18 months? And now, uh, CISOs need to start looking at those threats, looking at those risks to see how they can guard against them and you know, getting ahead of potentially the next generation of threats. So a few years ago, we hadn't anticipated WannaCry and other ransomware attacks, and now they're almost part of daily business. What's coming around the corner, in your view, that potentially could be as disruptive? Um, yeah, I, I just think they'll increasingly get um, better, the ransomware, the, the money will be hard to trace, they'll move to cryptocurrencies like Monero, which is much more um, anonymous than Bitcoin, for instance, again, because um, we, we've seen that the FBI, the colonial pipeline attack, which was one of the biggest ransomware attacks there, um, which brought down the 50% of the fuel pipeline in North America. 
Um, again, and the FBI then, of course, um, said that they had got the wallet and were able to decrypt or, you know, get back to, you know, get back 3.6 million or whatever else. But um, anyone knows that you can't crack a Bitcoin wallet. That It was obvious that the government had gone um, behind the scenes to the Russian authorities and the Russian authorities, I'm pretty sure, told the ransomware gang to transfer the money to a particular Bitcoin wallet, which would have been owned by the FBI. And that's how they got around that again. But we're just going to see increase in um, and until until we have some sort of way of protecting systems again. We're just going to see that's where the money is to be met in encrypting files. And I, I can't see a more serious threat at the moment. Data breaches are serious, of course, but um, but a data breach apart from maybe the implications of the fine or maybe loss of reputation, everything else, um, it doesn't completely disrupt, um, you know, your, your, your operations, your daily ones, but ransomware does or anything which encrypts files and brings it down. Um, I, I guess we're just going to see airports. We're going to see, um, we're going to see a lot of civilization come into a hold in, in the next few years, really, until we have some, some sort of um, oh, way to fight this or whatever, you know, because it's, it's, everything relies on technology. The Visa network went down about a year ago in London, if you remember, for about 24 hours, and it caused chaos. And that was just a technical hitch because people couldn't buy their food, couldn't get their trains home, couldn't pay for taxis. Um, you know, and we've just kind of sleepwalked. And it's not that we could have done much about it, but we have sleepwalked into a world where everything relies on technology. And when that technology gets attacked, then, of course, disruption comes in many, many forms. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? So when we talk to when we talk about the question of developing technology, quite often CISOs are saying that they're not involved early enough in the process. They're not involved at the design stage, so they can put the security measures in, uh, which prevents some of these. You know, they can't prevent all of these factors, but they can prevent some of these factors that um, you've mentioned there. Is that something more broadly then that needs to be done as? industry and government starts to work together on this and actually say, well, okay, where are these vulnerabilities coming from? And we need to take a slightly longer term view that we need to secure our systems from the outset and harden them in a way that allows them to be more resilient, allows them to continue because the threat actors are not going to give up. Yeah, we're possible again. And that, that's where you have your paradigms like zero trust models and other things as well and having a, a strong team um, around you but yeah and i guess what you pay for as well but the problem again in education education wouldn't pay high salaries for for again and that's a problem you know there's limits with when it comes to higher education so you're not going to get um really the, the people who were the, the skilled experts in cybersecurity, they're going to work in industry. So that can be a bit of a problem for, for any university, any institution, even the healthcare system as well. Healthcare system, you're not going to get the largest salaries again, but these are important institutions for us. So maybe something has to be done with salary caps or maybe people have to, to realize the importance of cybersecurity teams and senior cybersecurity um, you know, architects as well. So maybe we just have to increase the wages. Well, that's one approach, isn't it? I suppose the other approach is to put more resources into organisations such as the NCSC, who can then provide that top level advice and support to organisations that may not have the internal resources. Is the mileage in that and increasing the amount of research that's done into cybersecurity issues as well? Absolutely. And that is the Israeli model as well, where they have a one stop um, national cybersecurity centre, really. Um, again, and they also put money into education to put money into um, courses for cybersecurity and again in working with industry as well but that is definitely because 
again, it, it doesn't make sense for every, you know, for the, the top 200 companies to all be working independently and trying to, you know, maybe build systems which are resilient and everything else. Whereas you could have one one center doing it for us, really, and using that research, releasing the tools to the rest of us. And there's cost, you know, savings there as well. So that, that that's just a better way of doing it. It certainly would be. And give, giving people a level of assurance that the, the standards there are being met, I suppose, is the other way of looking at that. Yeah, absolutely. Just to wrap up then, I think if, if we look at that question of resources, uh, the resource is a constraint for the, the academic and research sector. Uh, but in the long term, is it your view that these investments have to be made, whether they're made internally by the institutions or whether it's with the support of government, just because otherwise the risks are too great? We have a huge digital economy here in the UK. Um, and again, we have to protect that. Our infrastructure relies on on our technology again. So again, we just have to protect it as a nation, protect it. Um, you know, obviously institutions have to play their own role as well. But again, we just can't allow, unfortunately, we just can't put the borders up for the moment. You know, the internet is global. It's hard to attribute attacks again. So we just have to just presume that this will increase for the for the you know for the foreseeable future and then just to um, use all the resources available. Kevin Curran on the need for academia, research and government to collaborate to reduce security threats to the sector. That though is all for this episode of Security Insights. In our next programme, we'll hear from a CIO at a UK university and a former US academic researcher turned industry analyst about what they see as the challenges posed by cybersecurity. That will be live on Wednesday, September the 8th, and I hope you can join us then. In the meantime, you can catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, and of course on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.